Greetings and welcome to episode number three of Unrelated Things. If you listened to earlier episodes, thank you very much for coming back for more. If you haven't yet listened to any previous episodes, uh, feel free to go back and take a listen. I don't have any sponsors yet for this podcast. If I did have one, I would talk about them right here. But in lieu of a sponsor this week, I will have a moment of silence for the dead and the injured from the Boston Marathon bombings that took place on Monday. You can find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net or you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. So on to the chatter and the cheekiness. Bruce Coburn singing Great Big Love, and I think the key line in there is, never had a lot of faith in human beings, but sometimes we really shine. So that's my top pick for this week. My top pick for this week is the responders to the dead and injured at the Boston Marathon bombing. And they're my top pick because they ran into harm's way and risked their own lives and their safety to save lives, provide treatment, and provide comfort to the injured and the shaken. Human beings displaying selflessness. One of the most impressive videos I saw of the aftermath of the first explosion was taken by a cameraman who, at the sound of the explosion, ran towards the smoke and the chaos as other people ran away. He moved right into the high-risk zone to record the scene. There were a lot of medical personnel that rushed in to provide assistance to the critically injured and the disoriented spectators, uh, both trained professionals who had been in the crowd and race support personnel at the finish line who were on hand to support runners, all selflessly provided critical aid to the injured of the bombing. And all the firefighters, the police, the EMTs, other professional crisis response personnel that risk their lives to aid others um, as, as part of what they do every day, but really responded to, to this tragedy in Boston and, and put their lives on the line um, to take care of injured people. And all of the, all of the bystanders that, that weren't professionals, that weren't trained, that were, happened to be in that place in, at, at a critical moment, who did everything in their power to aid aid the injured, aid the sick, aid the professional uh, crisis response personnel to take care of the injured and the sick. So they are absolutely all those people 
who went out of their way in a, a dangerous and risky situation to take care of their fellow human beings. Uh, they are my top pick for this episode. Up your trousers. It's time to wade into the news. So off we go wading into the shallow end of the news for this week. And the shallow end of the news in this episode um, is uh, very focused on thefts gone wrong or thefts gone bad or just really, you know, um, bumbling thieves. So, police in New Hampshire got a search warrant for a jewelry theft suspect, but they had to bring him to the local hospital to execute their search warrant. Employees at a jewelry store in Manchester, New Hampshire, say the suspect was looking for an engagement ring when he picked up a ring and he ran towards the door. Store employees confronted him, and when they did, they saw him put his hand to his mouth and swallow. When he was detained by the police, he denied swallowing the ring. Police say surveillance footage shows the gentleman taking the ring and putting his hand to his mouth. So the police got a search warrant, and the search warrant was to actually x-ray the suspect to see if indeed he had swallowed the ring. And so they executed that search warrant, and they x-rayed the gentleman. And the x-rays did show the 14-karat white gold ring with princess-cut diamonds inside him. So he was arraigned on charges of theft and falsifying physical evidence. It wasn't immediately clear if this uh, gentleman had a lawyer, according to the story that was written about it. And he, he was his bail was set at $50,000, including the ring's recovery. A couple days later, police confirmed that they did recover the ring, and that ring was valued at $3,200. So uh, th- thief trying to get away with... Uh, Stealing a ring and hiding the evidence, concealing the evidence by swallowing it. Very unusual story, but he was apprehended and brought to justice. This happened. In China, a creative and talented thief was seen on video. So not, not a stealthy thief. Uh, but was captured on video and in images running alongside someone riding on a bicycle and using chopsticks to pickpocket that person's phone from them as they rode around on a bicycle. So there were uh, some photos of the theft that hit the internet in China. And the the gentleman actually reaches out in the photos. You can see him reaching out in the photos with the chopsticks in his hand and lifting the phone out of the pocket of the cyclists. And then in the final photo, it actually shows him walking away with his prize, which in the photo appears to be an iPhone, or could be an iPhone clone, which are common in China. So this this hit the internet and got a lot of play and a lot of visibility around the world. And the thief, pressured by that circulating news reports, uh, he, he contacted a local journalist who recorded his story, and the thief then turned himself into the police. According to a report, um, the the thief turned himself in, no, the thief turned to stealing because he was struggling to raise his 12-year-old child alone. 
Um, so really uh, creative pickpocket styling out there in China by this particular thief. And another thing. Another really interesting uh, rash of thefts that has been in the news lately is are some really, really large-scale food thefts. So among some recent large-scale food heists include millions of gallons of maple syrup, thousands of tons of cheese, and a truckload of Nutella. While these thefts occurred in different countries, I thought to myself, what if there was a single mastermind behind these, these recent thefts? What if there's an evil genius out there that's craving some specific food so much that they wanted to stockpile the ingredients. So I set out to create the scenario for such a plot. A quick Google search of the ingredients provided a clue. There's a menu item called S'more Grilled Cheese at the Hudson's Lodge. It's a sweet sandwich with melted ricotta gruyere, cheddar cheese melded with Nutella, and maple syrup. And according to the menu, it will send your soul into you've got to be kidding me mode. And this, there's a story online that I saw in uh, relation to this particular menu item. And it reads this way. Put Nutella in anything and it really ups the yum ante. Slather that goodness on a grilled cheese sandwich and... Thickening arteries aside, it's quite possibly heaven you reach. Even better, you get to eat this one inside a giant ski slope inside the Hudson Hotel on the Lower East Side. They will even drop snowflakes on you while you're eating it to further perfect your wintry comfort food indulgence. So that really gets me to thinking. Did someone get a taste of the S'more grilled cheese and decide to stockpile its ingredients? I don't think law enforcement has connected these dots yet. They would do wise to watch the grilled cheese black market for any unusual activity. Episode number two of Unrelated Things, or if you've been paying attention uh, to unusual stories online, you probably have heard of the woman in Michigan who used two cans of tomato sauce to rob a bank. Well, there's an update on the story now. The police in Michigan have identified the woman that they say pretended the two cans of spaghetti sauce were a bomb when she robbed the Southeast Michigan Bank. Police say 53-year-old Ophelia A. Neal faces bank robbery and explosives charges in a robbery at Fifth Third Bank in Macomb County's Clinton Township, which is about 15 miles north-northeast of Detroit. 
The police are still hunting for the Pearl Absconder, even though they believe they have identified her as the bank robber. And they have a description of her. She is five foot seven and has partially gray hair. I know the initial story said that she was 60 years old, and the police identify her as a 53-year-old. So if nothing else smokes her out, I think the anger that she might have at being referred to as a 60-year-old is going to probably trip her up. So the bank, the the robbery, when the robbery went down, the um, woman had put the the bag up on the counter at the bank and said there was a bomb in her bag and demanded the money. She was given the money. She took an undisclosed amount of money and escaped in a car with a man at the wheel. She is still at large. Hold on tight. We're headed for the deep end. So on to the deep end of the news, the more serious stories that I've come across that have uh, piqued my interest in the last week or so. So writing for The Guardian UK, Ed Pilkington has a story about a innocent man who was sent to death row and was executed. And here's a, a couple of pieces from his story. The story is actually fairly long and detailed and and actually references uh, an even longer and more significant work about this particular case. A few years ago, Antonin Scalia, one of the nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, made a bold statement. There has not been, he said, quote, a single case, not one, in which it is clear that a person was executed for a crime he did not commit. If such an event had occurred, the innocent's name would be shouted from the rooftops. Unquote. Scalia may have to eat his words. It is now clear that a person was executed for a crime he did not commit, and his name, Carlos de Luna, is being shouted from the rooftops of Columbia Human Rights Law Review. The August Journal has cleared its entire spring edition, doubling its normal size to 436 pages to carry an extraordinary investigation by a Columbia Law School professor and his students. From the moment of his arrest until the day of his death by lethal injection, six years later, DeLuna consistently protested he was innocent. He went further. He said that though he hadn't committed the murder, he knew who had. He even named the culprit, a notoriously violent criminal called Carlos Hernandez. They told the jury that the police had looked for a Carlos Hernandez, the prosecutors did, after his name had been passed to them by DeLuna's lawyers without success. They had concluded that Hernandez was a fabrication, a phantom who simply did not exist. The chief prosecutor said in summing up, that Hernandez was a figment of DeLuna's imagination. But once the uh, Columbia law professor and and some of his team and and other people assisting him started to look into the existence of Carlos Hernandez, it took them one day to turn up evidence of his existence. They, They 
found someone who knew Mr. DeLuna and also knew Mr. Hernandez. And and they had strikingly similar appearances. Um, there's some some mug shots or some some profile shots in this particular article that show how similar they did look to each other. So after they they found out they found someone who knew both Hernandez and DeLuna, and they they found more and more information about Hernandez. They found his birth date, and they started to find his records. He had lots and lots of uh, arrest records. Over the years, he was arrested 39 times, 13 of them for carrying a knife, which was the murder weapon and the murder that Mr. DeLuna was convicted of and executed for. Um, but Mr. Hernandez was rarely put in prison. And there's speculation that he also served as a police informant, which despite all of his arrests and all of the violence that, that he exhibited, protected him in some ways from, from prosecution. So really recommend ta- you taking a look at this particular story in the Guardian UK. Stories called The Wrong Carlos, How Texas Sent an Innocent Man to His Death, and actually is a story from almost a year ago. Um, so it is not, not brand new news, but is very interesting news that I came across just last week. And take a look if you want to look into it even further. Check out the Columbia Law School, um, Columbia Human Rights Law Review, which had a major, major addition um, outlining this particular case. Let's get deeper into the conversation. So on to another story. This story from businessinsider.com by Henry Blodgett. Profits just hit another all-time high, which sounds great for the economy, but wages just hit another all-time low. In case you need more confirmation that the U.S. economy is out of balance, one, corporate profit margins just hit another all-time high. Companies are making more per dollar of sales than they have ever before. Two, wages as a percent of the economy just hit another all-time low. Why are corporate profits so high? One reason is that companies are paying employees less than they ever have as a share of GDP, gross domestic product. And that, in turn, is one reason the economy is so weak. Point three, fewer Americans are working than at any time in the past three decades. The other reason corporations are so profitable is that they don't employ as many Americans as they used to. As a result, the employment-to-population ratio has collapsed. We're back at 1980s levels now. In short, our current obsessed with profits philosophy is creating a country of a few million overlords and 300 million serfs. That's not what has made America a great country. It is also not what most people think America is supposed to be about. So we might want to rethink that. Specifically, we might want to have the goal of our corporations to be to create long-term value for all of their constituencies, customers, employees, and shareholders, not just short-term profit for their shareholders. Some of you listening out there might think, oh, socialist, you know, socialist banter out there and, you know, coming from 
from this podcast and coming from this story. That was verbatim from the story. This was from Business Insider. This was not from the Anarchist Weekly. This is someone writing in, in Business Insider about what the the state of our country is as far as profits and wages go and really, you know, encouraging us to take another look at whether that is the right place to be. Are you kidding me? So the Nova Scotia justice minister, his name is Ross Landry. And on Wednesday, he said that he realized that his initial response to the suicide of Retea Parsons was inadequate. After the emotional reaction began pouring in from his colleagues, constituents, and Canadians from around the nation. Not only from Canadians around the nation, but from people around the world. Um, there, I'll, I'll get into the story a little bit more. But the Nova Scotia Justice Minister recently said there's no need to take another look at this case. The case was investigated. I stand by the investigation that has already occurred. And there's no need to take a second look at it. Due to pressure from people throughout Canada and from people throughout the world, he has reversed that stand and he has said, I was wrong and you guys are right and we do need to take another look at it. He reversed his position on late Tuesday asking for a review of the case. By Wednesday morning, he had met with Retea's mother, Lee Parsons. Now he's considering legislation that would prevent the distribution of disturbing graphic images, such as the ones taken on a cell phone of Retea's alleged sexual assault in November 2011. All right, it, it's, it's something to think about, but I don't think the solution to this crime was ban the distribution of the images. I think the solution to this crime is find the people that committed the crime and, and prosecute them. So Retea was a 17-year-old in Nova Scotia. And she was persistently bullied online after some photographs were circulated around her Cole Harbor High School and the community. The photos were of her being raped, uh, not, not dissimilar to the, the case in Steubenville, where she was apparently drunk, um, otherwise unable to, to respond and to certainly to give consent, and was raped by multiple people who took photos and images of the event and distributed those throughout her school. Um, so the, the release of those images to her classmates in her community just allowed, allowed a, a kind of a, a torrent of pressure and a torrent of bullying towards her um, because of those images in the public. And even despite moving to another community and switching schools, she just couldn't escape the torment that that was added to the crime that was committed against her by the rape itself. And so she attempted suicide and, and died from her suicide attempt. Um, so that's what sparked the, the global the global flow of information about this particular case out. The group Anonymous got involved and claimed to have found the identities of the rapists and threatened to release those identities 
um, if the justice minister and other law enforcement enforcement officials in the community didn't didn't do something more to bring the the perpetrators to justice. Um, I applaud Anonymous's efforts in uncovering information. I think there's some risk involved in that if if they come to incorrect conclusions and then broadcast that information out there. We don't need another another group of bullied individuals um, in case someone is mistakenly identified or mistakenly tied to a crime that they did not participate in. But anyone who did participate in the crime and even in the dissemination of the images should be brought to justice, should be arrested and, and brought to court. And, you know, the full weight of the law and the full punishment should come down on them. Uh, it's a, a heinous, heinous act that was committed um, to this 17-year-old girl. And the disdain and the torment and the bullying that she faced after the fact by other people is also just just unconscionable. So hopefully the justice minister in his in his new look, having his eyes opened by the public and and the world and his new look at this case will be able to bring some justice to this case. It's just a a crime that the lack of appropriate action from day one contributed to the suicide of Ratea Parsons. The hell is wrong with us? We know that two explosions gravely wounded dozens of Americans and took the lives of others, including a eight-year-old boy. This was a heinous and cowardly act, and given what we now know about what took place, the FBI is investigating it as an act of terrorism. Anytime bombs are used to target innocent civilians, it is an act of terror. Anytime bombs are used to target innocent civilians, it is an act of terror. According to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, as of January 2013, the estimated total number of drone strikes by the CIA is 362. The estimate of the total number of people killed is 2,600. The estimate of the civilians killed is 475. And the children reported killed is 100. 76. Unrelated thing. In an unrelated thing, President Obama in his recent budget proposal pro- proposes shifting funds from nuclear nonproliferation to nuclear weapons. So he's actually taking money away from the efforts to reduce the spread of nuclear weapons and putting that money into building up the U.S. nuclear weapons stockpile. This is a story from publicintegrity.org by R. Jeffrey Smith. The Obama administration will propose a deep cut in funding for nuclear nonproliferation programs at the Energy Department, 
largely so it can boost the department's spending to modernize its stockpile of nuclear weapons. The half-billion-dollar shift in spending priorities reflects an administration decision that the nuclear explosives work at the Energy Department performs for the military should be both accelerated and expanded. Under the 2014 proposal, the Energy Department's Nuclear Weapons Activities Funding which includes modernization efforts for bomber-based and missile-based warheads, will be increased roughly 7%, or around $500 million, above the current level of $7.227 billion for these activities. The department's non-proliferation programs, aimed at diminishing the security threat posed by fissile material in other countries that can be used for nuclear weapons, would be cut by roughly 20% or $460 million, below the current level of $2.45 billion, the officials said. So cutting the, the funding for protecting us from global uh, materials that could potentially be turned into nuclear weapons, and adding to the funding of making our, our weapons stockpile more modern, does very, very little. And I would say does absolutely nothing and actually takes us in the wrong direction for trying to prevent future terrorist attacks that may contain nuclear components or nuclear nuclear materials. Our own nuclear weapons are are not a weapon against the terrorist and the ter and terrorism. Our nuclear weapons are are weapons against other countries that also have nuclear weapons. They're they're in some ways deterrents. They're not deterrents to the terrorists. The terrorists could not care less. Maybe they care a little. Maybe they think we shouldn't have nuclear weapons because of how we act in the world. But our nuclear weapons are not a deterrent to the terrorists. There is very, very little that will be a deterrent to the terrorists because their motives are not are not based on the types of motives that drive states to be stable entities. Um, so I think it's a, it's a, a critical misstep in trying to keep the world and the U.S. Uh, protected from potential terrorism in the future to cut by 20% the non-proliferation programs at the Department of Energy. Because TV is so good. All right, out of the deep end of the news and on to the next topic. And the next topic is TV. And there's a, a couple of great programs out there. One of which I've watched a lot of and is finally appearing uh, in a new, a new format or new access. And one of which I've just started to watch. So both of these are now um, available on Netflix. Netflix has added some new programming in the last month or so. And the first of these two programs that you can now get on Netflix is Samurai Jack. Samurai Jack is a cartoon, uh, the, the style of which is really, really nice to look at and it's it stands out and it's very different from most cartoons you see out there uh there was a story on morepower.com it's m-o-a-r-p-o-w-a-h dot com that has a little bit of information about samurai jack samurai jack for those that aren't familiar the show focuses on the samurai who is flung into the future by the evil demon aku 
Arriving in a new time period, Jack sees a world that has fallen under the sway of a coup and fights to return to his own time and prevent these horrors from occurring. The art and animation are gorgeous, dare I say revolutionary. The style involves figures without outlines, giving a unique appearance to this series. Furthermore, Samurai Jack is a series all ages can enjoy. It's got exciting action, but nothing overly gory, and some clever humor that will allow adults and kids to chuckle together. I remember when this was airing on the Cartoon Network, and the animation style was just really, really intriguing to me. Uh, The writer and producer is, uh, I'll probably mispronounce his name, Um, Glenadi... um, and now I can't even think of his last name. Tartakovsky. Um, and I'm, sur- I'm sure I mispronounced that. He is the same um, person behind the Powerpuff Girls and behind Dexter's Laboratory. But Samurai Jack really, really has, uh, I think, has more appeal to adults be- um, because of the storylines and the art style. Um, it's really, it's really akin to kind of a, a very well animated um, comic book. Um, it's got, it's kind of goes from separate panels. The, the musical style is really interesting that there, there's a lot of calm periods. There's fight scenes that are really, really well orchestrated. It's just a, a really, really well put together program. Um, very artistic and very, you know, from from my perspective, very entertaining to watch. So it is now available on Netflix. So if that sounds interesting to you, or if you remember watching Samurai Jack in the past and want to take another look and catch up on the series, um, you can catch that on Netflix. In addition to that and the other programs that Netflix has recently added, they've added the TV show Fringe. Um, they have the first four seasons of Fringe on Netflix now. And I just started getting into the series Fringe. I've heard a lot of different people talking about it um, on some of the other podcasts I listen to. And have have not universally, but overwhelmingly said, had really, really good things to say about the series. Um, I've never watched Fringe, maybe one episode or two when it aired on television. But I started to catch up with Fringe, but the only way I could really easily get Fringe was through my Amazon.com instant streaming service where it was available and started and have watched probably the first four episodes of season number one. And now I see that it is available on Netflix, which will be even better because the Amazon.com instant streaming app on my iPad will not use AirPlay currently. Hopefully they'll update that soon. So it's been a show I've been watching on my iPad. Now through Netflix and through my Apple TV, it will be a show that I'll be able to watch on my television set. So if you don't know about Fringe and haven't heard about it, there was a story at m.neogaf.com, N-E-O-G-A-F.com. Um, with a little bit of background. And they write, Fringe, now on Netflix. You may be late to the party, but there's still enough LSD for everyone. 
What is Fringe? Fringe is about a special division of the FBI called the Fringe Division, which investigates strange phenomena outside of normal FBI standards. In that respect, it is much like X-Files. Like X-Files, the show does very much follow a Monster of the Week format for much of its run, but nearly every episode still drives the main narrative forward and is still important in the grand scheme of things. Having seen the entire series, this is the best way to boil it down to its main ideal. It is a show about family, loss, and redemption. So, as I said, I don't have a lot to personally say about Fringe yet. The first few episodes are intriguing as the story starts to build and you, and you do get this kind of monster of the week or focus of the week, um, you know, uh, arc in every episode. You know, m- much like CSI or the crime dramas where something unusual happens and they have to solve the, solve the puzzle and figure out what's going on and who's behind it. So if I feel the need in the future as I, as I get deeper and deeper into Fringe, I will talk some more about it and let you know what I think. Because TV is so good. to the Eureka Minute, still my favorite TV show of recent years and perhaps of all time. Um, so, Eureka, for this episode, I'm going to just go through. There's a website called Metacritic that their their subtitle is Keeping Score of Entertainment. So they go through different critic reviews of programs and Post those scores online. So, Eureka Metacritic score is 62 based on 20 critics' reviews, which is generally favorable. Uh, In relation to that, on a score of 1 to 10, user reviews are 8.9. So, the users definitely have a higher, higher rating and higher ranking than the critics do. But I'm just going to read through the critic reviews, the the 20 critic reviews that are posted here. They're all kind of one-line reviews of Eureka. And this is these all came out most likely very near when Eureka debuted. Yes, the series premiere was July 18th, 2006. It, Eureka, if you don't know about it, is a series that has aired on the Sci-Fi channel. It is also available on Netflix, and that's where I caught up with the entire series before watching the last season and a half on Sci-Fi, before its premature demise at the hands of Comcast and the executives, um, which canceled it. So here we go with the critic reviews, the one-line, two-line reviews from the critics of Eureka. The Boston Globe. With its population of must-love oddballs, the series drowns in its cool sci-fi concept. It, Yeah, good, and I misspoke. So let's go back. With its population of must-love oddballs, the series drowns its cool sci-fi concept in a flood of northern exposure quaintness. Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Eureka just doesn't rise to a northern exposure level of quality. 
the LA Weekly, it starts jumping in different directions so quickly that it loses focus. New York Magazine. I like the characters all enough to hope they can float this so far leaky dirigible. People Weekly wrote, the show borrows from Northern Exposure, Twin Peaks, maybe the corporate drama profit. Too many to gauge how it will develop. Entertainment Weekly said, the frustrating thing about Eureka is it doesn't know how seriously to take itself. The Hollywood Reporter said it can be pleasant, even charming at times, but not much more than that. Washington Post wrote, if you are a regular viewer of the network, whose hits include include Stargate SG-1 and Battlestar Galactica, be glad there's plenty of sci-fi to be found on Eureka. And if sci-fi is not on your TiVo, be glad that the show is driven more by characters than special effects. And so-so special effects at that. Variety wrote, the idea itself is pretty damn good, even if the execution doesn't quite live up to it. TV Guide said, a divertingly original but awfully precious comic fantasy. Seattle Post Intelligencer, it's all very quirky. Too quirky, maybe, for an audience that is used to spaceships, robots, and explosions. The LA Times wrote, it's an uneven show that lacks the finely crafted eccentricity of a northern exposure and Twin Peaks or Picket Fences, other strange small-town shows featuring police officers, but when I say uneven, I do mean that sometimes it's good. Newsday wrote, there's warmth and wit there, along with not a little magic. Miami Herald, surreal and then some. The Chicago Tribune wrote, even though broader does mean more conventional, conventional these days is underrated. From the Detroit Free Press, Eureka is clever paranormal escapism that sometimes teeters on the edge of whimsical excess, but that doesn't mean you won't find plenty of affable, oddball entertainment. New York Post wrote, quirky, fun, and smart. Literally. New York Daily News, Eureka is a sort of show that makes you want to see more of almost every supporting player, and of course, the show itself. From the Orlando Sentinel, Eureka is neither as charming as Northern Exposure nor as sinister as Twin Peaks. Whatever it lacks in originality, Eureka still represents an oasis in this reality-infested summer. And from the Kansas City Star, which had the highest rating for Eureka, hilarious, delightful, and smart. Eureka may have the gumption to become the best sci-fi show since the late lamented Farscape. And I haven't seen Farscape, and I hear about Farscape an awful lot. So someday I will catch up on Farscape. But I absolutely uh, agree with the Kansas City star that Eureka definitely did have the gumption and grew in a lot of great ways and did become the best sci-fi show. And in my opinion, the best show that's been on television, you know, in, in at least a number of years. So those were the critics' reviews um, when Eureka launched in 2006. And... It's a tech thing! On to the tech news. A couple of tech, little tech stories. Uh, and this story, 
I'm not really focusing on this particular story for the story itself, but rather for the chart that was included in the story. So there was a story on AndroidAuthority.com by David Gonzalez called Google Exec Eric Schmidt Predicts the Entire Earth Will Be Online by 2020. Which, which was somewhat interesting to me. Interesting to me enough to draw me to take a look at the story. But what I found really fascinating, because it was so enlightening to me, was there was a chart in relation to this story called Internet Users in the World Distribution by World Regions, 2012. And being U.S.-based, uh, you know, everything in our media is U.S. centric and that that sets up a mindset in, in I think, um, us uh, citizens of the United States that we are more important than we really are when you look at the bigger picture. And I would have presumed that Internet users in the U.S. were as much as 50 percent of Internet users in the whole world. And that would have been extremely presumptuous because in reality, and they don't break it down by U.S., so the U.S. is actually a smaller portion of this total, but they have a, a, a North American total. And the North American region is only the third highest region in percent of Internet users in the world. And the North American region has 11.4% of Internet use in the entire world, which means most likely the U.S. internet users percentage is single digits, you know, because North America has Canada and has Mexico, and there's tons of internet users in both of those places. So single digits for a total number of inter internet users in the U.S. in comparison to the world, that was extremely enlightening to me. So the lowest number, uh, lowest percentage of the world's internet users comes from Oceania and Australia and only 1%. The Middle East has 3.7%. Africa has 7%. So Africa and the U.S. are not all that far apart from the total number of internet users in, in you know, users in the United States versus users in, in all of Africa are, are relatively close. And topping the U.S. Um, number of users and getting close to the North American percentage is Latin America and the Caribbean is 10.4%. And I presume since they don't list South America separately, that South America is included in the Latin America Caribbean number. Um, then again, we have North America at 11.4%. And who tops North America? Europe is getting close to double the North America percentage. The percentage of internet users in the world that come from Europe are 21.5%. So very high percentage come from there. But overwhelmingly more than double Europe's number and getting close to the half of the users in the world is Asia at 44.8%. And I mean, if I had really thought about it more realistically from uh, an unclouded uh, judgment or unclouded view, I think it clearly makes very good sense that Asia has 44.8% of the internet users in the world, since the population in Asia is a, a very, very large portion of the world's population. So just some really interesting 
facts that I found in this particular chart that was tied to this story about Eric Schmidt predicting that the entire Earth will be online by 2020. Another interesting story I came across online this week was by Dan Golden, and it's called Why Don't Cell Phones Have a Dial Tone? So this was a little short piece um, that he came across and he was, was presenting. So he writes, while reading the Idea Factory, I came across an interesting passage that explained why cell phones don't have dial tones. And here's that passage. Meanwhile, Phil Porter, who had worked with Richard Frankel on the original system, came up with a permanent answer to an interesting question. Should a cellular phone have a dial tone? Porter made a radical suggestion that it shouldn't. A caller should dial a number and then push send. That way, the mobile caller would be less rushed. Also, the call would be connected for a shorter time thus putting less strain on the network. That this idea, dial then send, would later prove crucial to texting technology was not even considered. It's amazing that although this suggestion was made in 1971, we're leveraging, leveraging it more than 40 years later with text messaging. How many other technologies and businesses are built on top of SMS that wouldn't have existed without this decision? I'm sure an SMS-like technology would have come along regardless of this decision, but it still makes me wonder how significantly past technological decisions influence us in the present. So just a few Apple tidbits that I pulled out this week. Um... One by at, from iFans.com called Fingerprint Scanning Could Be Headline Feature for iPhone 5S. So there's definitely been a lot of rumors about fingerprint scanning and that actually being incorporated into the next iPhone. And the Boy Genius Report is quoted in this particular article, and this is what the Boy Genius Report had to say. We believe fingerprint identification technology will be part of the iPhone 5S, and this is likely to be the major new feature used to market the iPhone 5S, similar to what Siri was to the iPhone 4S. And that was actually written by Brian White, a analyst for Topeka Capital Markets. The, the reason behind all these rumors is Apple acquired a security firm called Authentech for $356 million in 2012. Authentech was known for fingerprint sensors, touch chips, and security technologies. So it's expected that Apple does incorporate the, the, that equipment and into, into their devices in the future. They, Apple, even though it's really, really hard to predict what Apple does with its plans when it makes a purchase of another company because sometimes they're they're in it for the people they're in it for the the employees and the leaders of that particular company that have uh launched some interesting technologies and they want to fold that into apple and incorporate that into apple products and it is not always really clear um how that will be used and sometimes you never really see a specific 
use come out of it or you don't you don't see it in as clear a a function as when it was its own company but with authentic being known for the fingerprint sensors um it is likely that apple is exploring incorporating that into a new device or into many new devices uh in fact they may eventually roll that into all their devices um depending on what their real intent was for this particular um, technology. I don't, if I had to judge this particular rumor, I would put it at 50-50. Even though this was bought in July 2012, rolling that in in one year's time into a new device, which was probably already on the books and already, you know, well into its planning stages a year ago, um, they definitely knew what the roadmap was for the iPhone 5S uh, a year ago and, and had prototypes galore probably, but continued to to update that throughout the year. Um, I would say it's a 50-50 shot that the new iPhone has any type of a fingerprint sensor for extra security. And I, I think it's more likely that we would see that in the phone that comes out a year from now, which very likely would be the iPhone Six, so we will see uh, as the time gets closer for the rollout of the new updated iPhone. And on that note, Foxconn, which is a company in China that manufactures many of Apple's products, has begun taking on new workers as it prepares to begin production of Apple's next iPhone, according to two separate reports from Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. The company has added to its numbers at an iPhone plant in Zhengzhou, eastern China, ending a freeze-on recruitment that was implemented back in February. The new workers will reportedly assemble the upcoming iPhone 5S, as well as existing models that Apple has requested to boost capacity. The Zhengzhou plant employs between 250,000 and 300,000 people, and around 10,000 assembly line workers have been added per week since the end of March to boost its staffing. And even though official Foxconn spokespeople will not reveal any specifics behind the hirings, um, a, a executive familiar with the company's plans did have this to say to the Wall Street Journal. Quote, We have been very busy recently as we will start mass producing the new iPhone soon. So someone that is familiar with with Foxconn and as an executive related to that company, um, comes out with a pretty clear statement that iPhone production will be ramping up quite soon. So new iPhones in the works and who's going to buy those new iPhones? Uh, Again, a story from iFans.com saying nearly half of American teens own an iPhone. According, there's a study by, um, looks like Piper Jaffrey, and according to the study, an overwhelming 91% of teens said they plan on buying a smartphone for their next mobile device, as opposed to a feature phone, up from 86% last spring and 90% last fall. Apple's iOS took the crown as the most desired mobile operating system among teens. 59% said iOS will likely run on their next phone, while 21% said Android, 
5% said Windows Phone and 2% said BlackBerry. So there's a, a lot of stories that have been in the news in the past that, that talk about Apple's demise and Apple's weakness and, and, and also stories that talk about uh, the young people today not being interested in, in what the what people have now and what the, what the most popular things are now and are, are shifting away from it. Uh, I've, I've read stories about how the young people are really um, connected with BlackBerry and the BlackBerry messaging service and, and some young people really want a BlackBerry as their next phone. But this particular study only found 2% of their respondents that were interested in a BlackBerry for their next phone, while 59% were looking more towards the iPhone. So while I'm not terribly surprised, it is definitely a story that runs counter to some other recent stories out there that have been in the news in the past several months. So moving away from Apple Meter and the Apple News, uh, my tweet of the week, and I don't know if this will become a regular thing or if this will become just an occasional piece, but I think that the tweet that I followed this week that I think stood out to me the most was a tweet by Billy Bragg. And it was actually a retweet by Billy Bragg, who I do follow. And he was retweeting Michael Moore, um, who I don't follow directly. And Michael Moore had posted a clip from comedian Bill Maher. Uh, who hosts a TV show on HBO. And it was a video clip on YouTube, and it was a Bill Maher New Rules video, and it's called Bill Maher New Rules. Have to kill yourself, North Korea. And here's a short piece of that longer clip. With Afghanistan winding down, America is now dangerously close to not having a war. <laughs> And if you know our history, that is something we will not tolerate. If you type wars involving the U.S. into Wikipedia, the list is 32 pages long. We've been at it with somebody or another for 216 of our 237 years. At some point, don't you have to look in the mirror and say, maybe it's me. Oh, boy, howdy. So that was a clip that was tweeted by Michael Moore was a clip of Bill Maher tweeted by Michael Moore retweeted by Billy Bragg which is how it got into my eyes and ears and I'm passing along to you as my tweet of the week so on to the final topic final topic for this week is crowdfunding it is a topic that I will definitely um, come back to again and again and probably have a regular regular piece on each Unrelated Things episode about crowdfunding just because I love the concept of crowdfunding. I love the concept of fan-supported entertainment, of fan-supported technology. If your idea is good enough and strong enough and you can reach out to enough people then you don't need the corporation and you don't need the the big entity to come in and give give you and I say give you but I shouldn't say give you 
and invest their money and then suck out the profits after the fact. So crowdfunding typically works in a very different way. Crowdfunding is a funding method where people just like you and me fund ideas, business projects, you know, entertainment projects that they find interesting and appealing and that they want to enjoy it some in some way in the future or just that they want to support because they support the idea of of what is being proposed. So there was a story online about crowdfunding and this was by Alvaris Falcon at Honkiat H-O-N-G-K-I-A-T dot com. And I do not have a date on this particular story, but it does provide 10, a list of 10 crowdfunding sites. And it's titled 10, 10 Crowdfunding Sites to Fuel Your Dream Project. And because there's no date on here, and because I haven't personally checked out each of these sites, I cannot let you know if all of these sites are still going strong or really what their status is. But I will raise the raise the list anyway um, for you if if you're looking into this type of thing or enjoy this type of thing for you to be able to check out on your own. So all of the sites on this list have various different um, criteria for the projects that they will fund. So they all have different different things they'll accept or not accept. Some are really really strict business focused. Some are entertainment focused. Some are personal focused. There are crowdfunding sites that you can ask people for money to throw a party for your for your birthday. I mean, there are crowdfunding sites that you can ask for donations to support your medical bills. So there's a real wide variety of the criteria that various sites will allow projects to, to come under their umbrella um, following. There's also a very, very different level of of the particular site um gaining its its support from the, from your project so basically if if you raise a hundred thousand dollars for whatever project it is you're raising invariably on these sites a percentage of what you raise and what your funding what funding comes to you goes back to the site in in fees of various sorts so all of these do have some fees connected to your final funding of your project. So here we go with the list. And the list starts with the two biggies. And the, the biggest and the, the most well-known crowdfunding site is Kickstarter. Um, the next biggest, I think, and probably most, or next most well-known is Indiegogo. I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O. Those are the two big ones and I think are the two most well-known and the two that maybe you've heard of before. Then we get, as we go down the list, we get into a lot of other crowdfunding sites that have various focuses that are not that well known, almost all of which I'd never heard of before. So I'll just go down through the list without taking a lot of time to describe what the focus any of these particular sites have. So you'll have to check into these sites to see what their focus is, what they accept and to see what projects that are that are posted there. See if there's projects on here that you support and that you want to fund that didn't appear on the big two because of various reasons, including the restrictions on what will be allowed on the big two crowdfunding sites. 
So number three is Rocket Hub. Number four is GoFundMe. Number five is called Razoo, R-A-Z-O-O. Number six is Crowd Rise. Number seven is Pledge Music. And you can probably figure out what the focus of that particular one is. As well as this following one, number eight, is called Celeband. And is related to musical artists as well. Number nine is called App Backer. A-P-P-B-A-C-K-R. Which I think you can tell from the title is focused on funding the creation of apps. And number 10 on this particular list is Crowdfunder. So Crowdfunder is the final one on this list. So if you are interested in finding out what projects they have that they're featuring, or if you're interested in finding out where the best place is, to promote your project and to start your crowdfunding projects. There's some additional places to check out beyond the big two. The big, I think the biggest news in crowdfunding recently was the Veronica Mars... Um, the, the Veronica Mars... There goes my brain. That might, you know, why my brain? I don't know if I talked about this in one of my early, earlier shows. But when I know the right word is in my brain, my brain just, just like kind of shuts down for a minute and says, I know it's in here. Don't say anything. So we get these nice awkward pauses as I search. My brain hunts through the file cabinets up there looking for the right word. No, it's here. I know it's here. And then finally it comes. So I don't know what disease that's related to, but I'll probably find out in, in a few years. So back back to where we started. Um, Veronica Mars, the Veronica Mars project, which was on Kickstarter, was a project to raise funding for a new Veronica Mars movie. Veronica Mars, if you don't know what it was, it was a television show that was, you know, about 10 years ago was, was on TV um, and had a pretty good following. And kind of developed a little cult following. Um, it it starred Chris, Kristen Bell uh, and and others as well who have gone on to to some significant careers or continued their significant careers. But in any event, uh, the Veronica Mars movie was a Kickstarter project, and the initial goal for the Kickstarter project for Veronica Mars was two million dollars. So pretty aggressive goal to start out with. Um, and on Kickstarter, there's typically about a 30-day window for funding. So Veronica Mars funding period closed a little while ago. And they raised a total of $5,702,150. The total number of backers that funded the Veronica Mars movie was 91,585. So this was a significant success. It's really hard to judge what dollar amount the the project backers, the project creators were really looking for. Because on Kickstarter, one of the caveats is if you don't get your funding, you get $0 and no one gets charged for for pledging their funds to your project. 
So often a project will be set up and it will it will come in with a, a low number. It'll it'll come in with a minimum. Here's here's the amount of money that can get us to the next step or the next level, though it is not necessarily the amount of money they want or need to be successful in their project. So it's a little tricky for people setting up their projects as to what is our target number? What number do we put in? And and their target number sounds pretty aggressive, $2 million. But when you're looking at producing a movie in Hollywood, even with with actors that are willing to work at scale, which is the, the base wage, and then get a, a piece of the profits on the back end, um, making a movie in Hollywood is is a much, much more expensive undertaking than $2 million will support. There are many um, television programs that have budgets of $2 million per episode or or at least over $1 million per episode. So it's a very expensive project. And they so they did end up raising $5.7 million, which will get them really going far um, with this particular project, which is excellent. Uh, so what does this mean in the bigger picture? I think what it means in the bigger picture is there's a fan base out there that will support projects that Hollywood, that the studios won't necessarily support. In order to get the the, um, the Kickstarter for Veronica Mars going, the studio, and I, th- uh, I can't remember if it's Universal Studio in this case, um, so I'm not sure what studio owned the Veronica Mars franchise, but they had to get permission from the studio to go forward, to move ahead and to actually do this because they don't, the, the backers, the, the people who put the project together don't own the rights to Veronica Mars. They had to make a connection with the studio and say, if we get this going, will you support it? And will, will you allow this project to go forward? And the studio said yes and, and allowed the project to go forward. So I think it, it's, it's a big step in changing the way projects are funded. It's a big step in fans of programming to be able to keep that programming going. So it will be great to see other similar projects get off the ground. And it'll be great to see this movie finally come out and finally see the, the final product, product that was supported by over 91,000 fans donating their money to make it happen. So one last bit of crowdfunding. Uh, Unrelated Things operates in the state of Vermont out of my living room. And there have been a couple of crowdfunding sites launched for the state of Vermont. And these are really in their extreme infancy at this point, just starting out. Um, the, The creators of these sites saw that there were a lot of people from Vermont, a lot of projects from Vermont that were on Kickstarter or on other crowdfunding sites, and they decided, well, maybe we can find our niche in this in this crowdfunding, you know, um, cosmos out there. So uh, locally, the the Kickstarter model is being copied by a couple of of entities. Um, one of these is called Three Revolutions, and this started a few months ago. 
with a focus on raising donations for a variety of food and farming projects in Vermont. So something that I really hope takes off and hope becomes very successful. Um, and I've, I've looked into the site. It has only a couple of projects, you know, on its books right now. But hopefully there'll be more attention to this particular site and really we'll be able to fund a lot of critical projects in the state of Vermont and possibly grow beyond the state of Vermont um, if it's successful and does well and, and, and is able to become bigger. Uh, and another one just, you know, in the last couple of weeks was launched called EcoHub. And EcoHub is planning to raise money for Vermont environmental projects. Um, it was created by um, three women who have who are at or have attended the Vermont Law School. Um, so they have some projects that are environmentally related, um, based in, in the state of Vermont as well. So beyond the Kickstarter, beyond the Indiegogo, beyond the, the national or international groups that are out there that are, are doing this crowdfunding, there are local solutions. There are local people here in Vermont. There are probably local people wherever you are out there listening to us that have begun some crowdfunding projects and some crowdfunding sites to support local projects. So there are lots and lots of options out there. If you have a project that you want to get off the ground, you don't have to wait for a windfall or a, a sugar daddy to come along and to be able to give you the money to make your dreams and your ideas happen. Um, you can do it on your own. You can start things on your own and you can seek support from your community or from the wider community um, through crowdfunding. So whatever your ideas are that you have out there, you know, take a look at these various different options and different sites that you may potentially find some funding through. See if any of them fit your needs and you know, go ahead and launch your idea and launch your project and create your new life. And hopefully in the process, create a better world. I think the most exciting thing about crowdfunding funding is it's not in the mainstream of the economy. It's on the edge of the economy and, it, and it's creating new and different ways that money flow from person to person and not as much from person to corporation. So check those kind of things out and let me know what you think. And that'll do it for episode number three of Unrelated Things. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it enough to come back again. If you did or if you didn't, you can let me know at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. Find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. It's Unrelated Things.